Welcome to Silicon Valley Vibes, a podcast from SVLG that connects you to the issues, ideas, and innovations in the Valley by talking to the people driving them. I'm your AI announcer, Vivi. Today's show runs from the frontiers of AI ethics to the impacts of health equity. Driving the important conversations are our SVLG hosts, Nadia Anderson, Chief of Staff for SVLG and SVP of Strategy, as well as her co-host Peter Leroux Munoz, SVLG General Counsel and SVP of Tech and Innovation. Welcome to the show. I'm Nadia Anderson. And I'm Peter Leroux Munoz, and we're excited to be bringing you Silicon Valley Vibes. So on this very ethical episode, we're covering the ethics of health equity and also the ethics of what is one of the hottest topics in the Valley and the nation right now, AI. Coming up, SVLG's own inclusion and belonging COE lead, Lisa Gaucher, speaks with Dr. Pierre Theodore at Genentech to get his take on the current state of health equity. But first, I had a fascinating and somewhat controversial conversation with Brian Green from the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University since we're on the brink of an alleged AI revolution. You know, each time I listen to these conversations about AI, I not only learn more, but I also have more questions about the promise, the potential, where we are, but also it's always a reminder that there are many voices that need to be at the table if we're to get this right and make sure that we do AI in a way that is beneficial for society and that we avoid some of the missteps we've had in the past when it comes to the rollout of game-changing technology. Nadia, you are not alone in those thoughts. There is so much going on with regard to this new technology and whether we're talking about art, music, television, safety, these are all areas that are gonna be dramatically impacted by artificial intelligence. And Brian and I had a really great conversation that delves deeply into each one of those. Let's take a listen. We have with us today, Brian Green, who is the Director of Technology Ethics for the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Brian, it is great to have you here today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Brian, before we jump into the substance of the conversation today, can you share just a little bit about your background and the Markula Center? Sure. The Markula Center has been around for coming up on, let's see, it started in 1986. So we're coming up on 40 years now. And uh, it started way back at that time because Mike Markle, who was the third employee at Apple, uh, his daughter was going to go to Santa Clara University. And he thought that Santa Clara University could do even more having to do with ethics. So that's how the, the center got started. We now have many program areas. We have business ethics, technology ethics, journalism ethics, government ethics, bioethics. So we're kind of a multi-program ethics center, but specifically applied ethics, which means that it has to be ethics that's relevant to the actual real world and how people behave in the real world. I'm at the Markula Center because I was working on kind of issues having to do with technology ethics. I was teaching ethics to engineers in the engineering school at Santa Clara. And they said, hey, Brian, why don't you come over here and do a little work for us? And eventually it turned into everything that I do. So I'm uh, very excited to be here. I'm very excited to, to uh, be working on the stuff that I work on because it is so, so important right now. Brian, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I can't think of a hotter topic right now in technology that everyone is talking about, whether you're working in the innovation economy, whether you're a consumer of technology, uh, whether you're just somebody who watches all this stuff from a distance. I think everybody's talking about AI, whether it's in a consumer sense through chat GPT or some of the other platforms, or whether it's through just philosophically 
thinking about what AI means for the future of business, culture, and our larger society. Uh, let's start there. What is the current state of play for AI in business and in culture uh, these days here in the United States? Well, it's really quite amazing. I would say we've, with these large language models coming out like uh, GPT-4 and ChatGPT, we've really seen now kind of a revolution in the way people are interacting with AI. And so it's going to start to get into everything, I think, is what's going to happen. Anything that has to do with language in particular, uh, whether it's written language or verbal communication, we're going to start seeing AI get into products and we're going to see start seeing it to in influencing culture also. It's going to be interesting because we've had all these science fiction ideas of what AI is supposed to look like. And uh, we're going to start seeing that actually happen in reality now. And that brings along, of course, a lot of hope and also a lot of fear. It's going to be an interesting experience going forward. Well, I, I think what's so fascinating about the developments recently around AI, especially as it pertains to language, is that AI now seems to be entering the province of what was traditionally very heavy around human creativity, right? It's one thing to teach machines to do a repeated motion or a repetitive activity again and again and again, and to recognize when to engage in that repetitive activity. But now we're seeing AI enter the field of, of poetry, of creative writing, of, of producing works of art. And I don't know about you, but I always thought that that was strictly a very human province. So this very much seems to be a change from what maybe we thought AI was going to look like several years ago. So you're absolutely right. It's it's really kind of surprising um, how well AI can imitate creativity. Um, of course, it's been trained on huge databases of, of human creativity. Everything that we've created on the internet, all the art that we've created, uh, all these things are, are sources of data that have been put into these large uh, AI models. And now... Um, it's just interesting to see how you can take these these uh, large data sets and put a few prompts into them and see what comes out. And it can be quite amazing. It can be very, very creative. Um, but of course, it's, it's creativity that's trained on human creativity. And it's also a product of human creativity because, of course, humans created these models in the first place. And uh, we put the prompts in and we decide whether we like what the result is. So there's still a lot of human interaction involved there. Um, but you're right. It's it kind of gets into something that we thought was very core to being human, and it starts to take that away from us, and and so it can feel a little strange for sure. Well, certainly one of the things that human beings have thought about for millennia is how they are to ethically engage in interactions with other human beings and their world around them. How should we be looking at and defining our understanding of ethics as it relates to AI? So I think that there are a lot of good things that AI is going to be used for. AI is going to do fantastic in in medicine. It's already producing wonderful results in that. It's producing self-driving cars. It's doing all sorts of other beneficial things in terms of, of going through data and uh, you know making human interactions easier in terms of content moderation on the internet and things like that. Of course, that's not perfect and everybody disagrees about what those values should be anyway. But uh, it's really permitting us to do things that we've never been able to do before. And many of those are very good things. But there's also this kind of dual use side of it. And dual use technologies are technologies that can be used for good and for bad. And some of the downside risks of AI include things like spreading misinformation, 
or uh, actively trying to deceive and manipulate people. We saw this kind of with uh, some of the recent things that uh, the recent news stories that came out with uh, Bing when they incorporated, you know, uh, GPT-4 into Bing. Uh, and they were doing some of these early experiments, it started saying things like, oh, leave your wife and, and come and marry me and things like that. And you say to yourself, wow, no AI should be saying this to people. And it's not just that. There's There are much more dangerous things, too. At the same time, we're already kind of experiencing this, I have to say, in the educational sector right now, because all the students know that if you didn't write your assignment fast enough, you can just go on to the OpenAI website, go to ChatGPT, and get a free answer for whatever your homework was, and then just paste that in. Now, it's not going to be the best answer in the world, but a lot of them are actually good enough to, to fool teachers. So we are having a problem now in the higher education industry, and not just higher education, but, but high school and uh, grade school as well, where students are not doing their work anymore, which means they're not going to be learning. And that's going to be really bad for the future if we can't figure out how to get around that. Right now, we see that the television writers are actually on strike one of the elements is they're trying to set limits on how much AI can contribute to a particular episode of t television or something like that. How should we be thinking about the intersection of ethics, AI, and music or television? So I think the writers are right to be on strike, including this as one of their uh, points that they want to make, because if they get replaced by AI, then we're going to be watching a bunch of shows written by AI and Personally, I don't want to watch a show written by AI. I want to watch watch a show that's written by a person um, because that has more meaning to it, right? Ultimately, entertainment is, or, or all this writing is not just about entertainment. It's about uh, the stories that we are made out of because every time we watch some sort of media, we are ultimately uh, kind of taking that media and incorporating it into who we are. You know, it sticks somewhere in our head, in our memory. And over time, those things build up and they turn us into the kind of the person that we are. If we just have AI do that, then we have to ask ourselves, well, does the AI care about us? Does it have our best interests in mind? What's it going to be teaching us? Is it just going to be a matter of, uh, you know, this is the most entertaining thing because we, you know, looked at a thousand different TV shows and these are the ones that turned out to be uh, the most entertaining, according to certain people. Or is there going to be something more behind that, too? Because we always have to think about the fact that uh, these these uh, people who control the AI ultimately are going to be controlling the outputs of the AI. And, it, you know, it's Hollywood still kind of that way, you know, in terms of people, you know, say yes to what the writers produce or no to what the writers produce. But uh, taking it to AI gives a level of centralized control that I think is even higher than we've had before. And we have to act, ask ourselves, is this the kind of future that we want to have where we're just consuming media that's uh, kind of rehashed and re completely removing humans from the equation. That consistent evaluation of, is this a future we want to have? Is this the, the present that we want to have? I think that's so incredibly important. And I know also that that spills over to the area of artificial intelligence and healthcare. And we know that that's a big area of growth. Medicine has always had a very strict uh, code of ethics. Where do we draw the line as it relates to healthcare and artificial intelligence? So this is a great question. And you're exactly right to bring up that medical ethics is a very, it's a robust field. People have been talking about this 
ever since Hippocrates wrote the Hippocratic Oath back in, you know, 23 centuries ago. At the same time, the tech industry doesn't have something like a Hippocratic Oath. It has, there are various codes of tech ethics, but they aren't kind of mandatory in the same way that ethics is mandatory in medicine. And so when we see this uh, very kind of ethically, uh, you know, robust profession meeting something that's a little bit different, we should wonder to ourselves, how are they going to interact with each other? Who's going to win in this struggle? Is it going to make medicine less ethical or is it going to make technology more ethical and i think of course what we should want is we should want the latter we should really want technology to become more ethical there are much simpler things to do too which is just how do you keep the best interest of the patients in mind keep the patients at the focus of all the technology that's being created then you know once you're thinking about the patients you also have to think about the doctors because the doctors are going to want to have to use that technology so make sure it's a technology that really benefits them, doctors and nurses, and then also make sure it's beneficial to the medical institutions themselves, the hospitals or clinics or healthcare centers, so that they also recognize that this is technology that's going to help them. As far as the best interests go, actually, the technology producers kind of need to put themselves last if they want to have a good product that actually sells, because if they're producing something that patients don't want to use and doctors don't want to use and hospitals don't want to use, that, of course, means no sales for them. So if they keep the best interests of others in mind, that should really help them in their product development process. Brian, you, you've given me so much to think about. And, and truly, this is a very complex topic. You know, when we look at different visions that have been portrayed in movies and pop culture around AI, we've got, you know, the the evil robots from Skynet and Terminator. We've got the helpful robots like Wally or Johnny Five. What are the most realistic alternate futures for AI? Uh, what are those that are grounded in, in reality that we can kind of extrapolate out? And how can we best prepare for those most probable alternate futures? This is this is interesting because a few years ago, I asked someone who was working at, at a big company working on machine learning, and said, hey, what's what do you think are some of the best movie depictions of AI? And he said, War Games. War Games is still kind of a classic movie in terms of realism, that uh, you have these simulations and maybe they can get out of control. And at the same time, the humans in that recognize after a while that they can that they can do better. They can try to fix this. And maybe it helps us recognize that some of our own assumptions can be questioned and fixed. You know, getting away from movies, what's the future that we're building right now? We're building a really interesting future where I think we're going to have a lot of benefits, but also a lot of risks that we need to kind of avoid. And I think the wonderful thing about ethics is that ethics really helps us to ask, what is the future that we want? What kind of world do we want to live in? And how do we make the choices in order to make that happen? So that's really one of the things that the Markala Center tries to do. We try to give people the resources that they need in order to make their own good decisions. So we have, for example, resources called Ethics and Technology Practice. We have a new book that's coming out called Ethics in an Age of Disruptive Technology, which shows companies how to really implement ethics into their corporate culture and help to make these good decisions. And really what we're pursuing here is we're all doing this together, but technology companies have a particular responsibility because they have to develop this technology and put it out into the world. And the, the technology is not going to get there, not necessarily unless they do the work themselves. 
And so they also understand that technology better than anyone else, but they don't necessarily understand how it's going to interact with society. We've seen that with social media and all of the many, many problems that have emerged from social media. As we go forward, we really can keep asking ourselves, is this technology doing what we want it to do? Are there ways that we can make sure when it is being developed that it turns into the kind of products that we want to see in society that really help people and are giving benefit to society rather than causing some sort of harm? Brian, I think you summed it up perfectly right there. I mean, really, humans are behind the future we are actively constructing, and we have to be active participants in all of that. And ethics is certainly one of the considerations that we have to bring into the calculus as we create that new reality for all of ourselves. And we really have to ensure that we don't abdicate that responsibility. So I I think you've touched on all of those points. I have learned an awful lot from this conversation. Uh, Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective on how ethics and AI merge together and how we can all be thinking about how AI is going to impact our lives, but also how we can continue to construct that new reality. So Brian, thank you again for joining us here on Silicon Valley Vibes. Peter, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. We'll be back with more Silicon Valley Vibes after this. Hi, Shannon Diatley Johnson, SVP and head of events at SVLG. Save the date for SVLG's 11th Annual Energy and Sustainability Summit, presented by Western Digital at the Oracle Conference Center in Redwood. Everyone's welcome to register at svlg.org forward slash events. We look forward to seeing you soon. Hi, this is Vivi. Welcome back to the conversation and the innovation on Silicon Valley Vibes. Welcome back to SVV. From the ethics of AI, we now turn to the implications of health equity. We're gonna hear from Dr. Pierre Theodore, Executive Director of Health Equity and Patient Impact in the Chief Diversity Office of Genentech to get his take on the current state of health equity. You know, Peter, health equity is another one of those topics where despite myself and working in the field of equity, really had to take the time to learn what health equity actually means. I think for a lot of people out there, they're going to be pleasantly surprised to know that this is an entire discipline that in some ways operates in the familiar spaces of equity and environmental justice, but in other aspects takes a totally different lens when it comes to what it means for patient outcomes, maternal health, but also for social and economic goals when it comes to society. I was surprised to listen in on this conversation and really learn about how deep this issue goes. And it extends all the way out to issues around housing, uh, transportation, uh, access to resources. This is truly an important issue that has so many implications for our larger society. So really getting into this conversation right now with Dr. Pierre Theodore is going to be so important for us to better understand how all communities are impacted by this important issue. Let's take a listen in. Pierre, thanks for joining us today on Silicon Valley Vibes. Can we start with a little bit of your backstory? How did you begin your journey on this incredible work? Well, first of all, Lisa, thanks so much for having me today. And I am so delighted to be here and having a chance to share a topic that's so near and dear to me around health equity with your listeners in the Silicon Valley Leadership Group and the greater community. So I want to start by offering my thanks for this day and this opportunity to discuss these topics with you. I think the background and the backstory is actually quite important around health equity and social justice in general. I think most of us have personal stories and in many ways drive and 
create the motivation for us to pursue these elements of our career. And I think it's maybe worth taking a moment to speak a little bit about my background in, in healthcare and some of the early observations that I found that drove me to really take health equity as a very serious issue as I went on to continue to develop my career in healthcare. And so, you know, I started off straightforwardly enough as a, as a physician. I, I graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in Charlottesville and then went on and I did a, a residency in general surgery and in cardiothoracic surgery at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. I'm actually from Baltimore and I had a subjective sense growing up from a very young age that the way that the health systems were experienced were really quite different across the different races and ethnicities and across different genders. And when I was training as a general surgery resident, I was there was an unmistakable issue that I encountered, particularly when I was working a lot in emergency medicine and in trauma care, in seeing night after night the same basic demographic represented in the victims of trauma. I saw African-American males, age roughly from 15 to about 25, over and over and over again, in such a way that it was so stark for me to say, well, this population is differentially impacted by the disease of trauma in Baltimore. And at the time, I didn't really have a framework for how to think about how one population would be at a higher risk for a disease process or higher risk for a poor clinical outcome than another population. I didn't have terminology of social determinants of health or the political determinants of health or the drivers of disease. I didn't have a framework of thinking about the political and the economic and the social background that leads to the experience that a person has in a healthcare system. But I did see the disease constantly, and I saw it represented in particular populations differentially, and that got me thinking very much about the issue of the determinants of disease. As I became a surgeon and went on to the faculty, I was on the faculty at University of California at San Francisco for many years. I also took a very strong interest in global health as well. My, my family is from Haiti. We were talking a little bit earlier about our sort of French Caribbean backgrounds to a degree, and it's a it's a part of my ethnic heritage that I take very seriously. And I began to spend time after one of the earthquakes in Haiti many many years ago. Uh, delivering healthcare on the front lines in urban and in rural settings in Haiti. And what I saw there, again, was this severe proclivity to advanced disease, a lack of early diagnosis, a lack of resources, significant barriers for the very basics of care, high rates of maternal mortality, cancers that presented very late, poor outcomes with treatable diseases like breast cancer. And that again, reinforce this idea that disease doesn't occur in a vacuum. It is a, a function in part of the population that we are part of, the amount of money that we have, where we live, um, the legacies of discrimination that certain populations have endured, or the advantages that some populations have versus others. And those things come together to define how we experience and some of the challenges that we face in healthcare systems. So my background as a clinician sort of brought up more of the questions that at some point I really felt as though I really had to answer. And I've done that through a career in industry as well.
Pierre, can you give us the definition of health equity for those listeners who may not be familiar with health equity? I'm so glad you asked that question, Lisa, because I think sometimes you can almost have these conversations run away a little bit where we're talking about health equity and what health disparities are. And we do so sometimes without actually, at some level, getting to some version of a definition that helps to really guide, create a common mental model as to as to what we're talking about. I think we all have a sort of a sense for what we mean by health disparities and health inequity, but sometimes it helps to really think very specifically and intentionally about the terminology. And, and when I think about health equity, I actually think a little about it about it in terms of being a, a noun and a verb. As a noun, health equity is, is really a fair and just opportunity for all people to have adequate access and achieve the highest level of healthcare that is possible for that individual. I mean, we will all be limited by our genes, and ultimately, as we as we age, there will be certain biologic phenomena that are unavoidable. But often, many of the diseases that we encounter are avoidable and unjust and unfair. And 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 health equity is offsetting those unavoidable health phenomena. Those issues that simply occur out of an issue of injustice or a legacy of discrimination, health equity as a noun is, is that fair and just opportunity for all to be have an, an equal opportunity for the highest level of health possible. As a verb, it's really a set of strategies. It's what do you, what do, you do to get there? What do you do to create that world in which each of us has a fair and just opportunity for the highest level of health possible? And and really, as I as thought about this, perhaps from our perspective at Genentech, but it really starts to boil down to two sort of big buckets of activity. We we want to look at the, the the portfolio of drugs and treatment strategies that we have access, that we have within our control, and ask ourselves what are the barriers between those important therapeutics and the patients that we want to serve, and how do we address those barriers? Some of those barriers may be maybe geographic. Where do people live? So maybe there are telemedicine technologies, for example, that are necessary to connect people who are in relative health deserts to healthcare providers. Some of them may be in terms of health literacy. How are the materials translated and who are the people who are interacting with the patients so that there is greater comprehension of what is available in terms of therapeutics and things like clinical trials. So, so, if you will, bucket number one is thinking about our products and services that we think are groundbreaking and what can we do to make sure that there is access for the population that we wish to serve. And the other is thinking more broadly. You know, the world, as important as Genentech is, the world of healthcare is still larger. So we start to think about the, the general barriers that patients face day in and day out, whether it is uh, access to transportation to get into a medical center, whether it is um, fair housing and water and the things that are, if you will, foundational to healthcare and healthcare delivery and well-being. And so we we think both, if you will, specific related to barriers to products, but then also at a larger level, what needs to be done generally to make sure that people have access to care and can live the healthiest life as possible. And that's that's how we define health equity, both as a as this noun of what we're trying to ultimately do lead to fair and just opportunity 
and then the the verb how do we get there through reducing the barriers to care both in terms of products and specific drugs and medication but also more broadly what people need to remain healthy and to remain free of disease. That is very hopeful and thank you. I, I want to dive a little bit more into to some of those conversations, um, but I know there's more to the story and your work with Genentech. Well, thanks for bringing that up. You know, Lisa, Genentech is a, an organization that is very dear to me. This company was founded in, in 1976 and it really started by trying to understand and harness the, the, the deepest and most precise elements of human biology as part of the drug discovery and drug development process. So it ushered in the modern era of biotechnology that now we sort of take for granted as you look across the Bay Area and you see the, the, the logos of companies plastered on buildings and you read every day of large acquisitions. This is a segment of, the, of industry that essentially was born at Genentech. But what's one of the things that we often say over and over again is that this is a company founded on science. Science drives us. And while that's true, the science doesn't lie singularly within the cell. It's not just molecular pathways inside of the cell that we need to address. There are social and political and economic sciences that we also need to take into consideration if we're going to be successful in reaching patients and making sure that these truly breathtaking innovations reach the patients. So on the one hand, I am intensely proud of Genentech and its founding status in the biotech industry, and also recognize that there's much work to be done to integrate many types of sciences, population sciences and economic sciences, as I mentioned, into addressing the needs of underserved populations. Silicon Valley Vibes will be back after this quick message. I'm Ahmad Thomas, CEO at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. As part of our acceleration agenda, I'm here to announce SVLG's new working group on responsible AI. It's the first initiative we're rolling out under our new Technology and Innovation Center of Expertise. We recognize the tremendous potential of and profound interest around this new technology, and we're committed to ensuring that AI is developed and implemented in a responsible way. The working group is co chaired by SVLG member companies Google and Johnson & Johnson. As the group takes shape, we look forward to working with industry experts, academics, and other stakeholders to bring diverse voices, perspectives, and disciplines to the table. If you'd like to get involved, please visit svlg.org to learn more. And now more from our guest, Genentech's Dr. Pierre Theodore on Silicon Valley Vibes. And we're back. So Peter, tell us what's coming in this next part of the conversation. Well, really the doctor shares his thoughts on how the success and viability of the healthcare system as a whole requires granular thinking and local action. Because there are local disparities that exist and certain communities, won't come as a shock, but do not have access to the same satellite centers, specialty care, or access to providers. And that inequity imperils healthcare for all communities. This conversation could not be more important. Let's get to it. So on the one hand, I am intensely proud of Genentech and its founding status in the biotech industry, and also recognize that there's much work to be done to integrate many types of sciences, population sciences and economic sciences, as I mentioned, into addressing the needs of underserved populations. 
how do strategic partnerships play a role in advancing health equity and addressing barriers with healthcare? I think the first thing is to recognize that that no single company, no matter how forward thinking and how advanced in and of itself is likely to significantly impact broadly health equity. It requires a, a coalition of the willing, as they say. And one of the main roles that Genentech can play is, is taking some of its authority in the space of healthcare and acting as a convener, bringing together core stakeholders that can address needs of underserved populations. So we have a series of initiatives, but you'll see that something of the theme of them is how do we amplify and bring together actors in a very complicated space of healthcare that can address health disparities and health inequity. And so a couple of examples are creating, for example, a council of researchers across the United States who are true leading experts in oncology and in ophthalmology and in primary care that can serve as advisors to the industry broadly and to Genentech specifically about what are the barriers that our patients are facing so that we have, as we work diligently in South San Francisco with science as our basis, we also are getting input as to what are some of the barriers that the patients are facing day in and day out that are preventing them from having access or having trust in organizations and in healthcare systems enough to really engage around clinical trial research, for example, or having access to our cutting edge medication. So, so one of the efforts that we've made is really putting into place an advisory council, we call our external council, to really help to to lead us in the right direction as we try to find the types of solutions that are necessary for improving the care of patients. Another uh, place where I'd like to draw attention to is around a series that we call our Health Equity Symposia. And we fund from coast to coast, one of the leaders on my team, her name is Veronica Sandoval. I don't know how she does it sometimes. I think she must have more frequent flyer miles than anyone in the United States. Travels across the nation and works directly with academic medical centers and community-based organization and public sector leaders to put on conversations, essentially symposia, where we teach and learn and connect with students and connect with caregivers and really cover some of those gaps in care and, more importantly, derive solutions that will allow us to implement to address healthcare disparities. So the health equity symposia that we set up across the United States is one other way that we really drive the conversation around health inequities. But let's also be frank, you know, at some level, you have to put your money where your mouth is. You have to be willing to make grants to find leaders and organizations that are actively addressing health disparity. Genentech has invested over the last several years, nearly $200 million in equity-focused giving alone. This is just on organizations that are, that are specifically offsetting the legacies of disadvantage that leads to healthcare outcomes differences across different populations, particularly among black and brown populations, I might add. So we have created every other year a health equity and diversity in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math innovation fund. And, and we've invested about um, $38 million into 89 different organizations since 2019 
all focused on trying to address health disparities. So we're not just driving the conversation. We're also putting dollars to try to address some of the structural issues that lead to health disparities through this innovation fund. Can you talk a little bit about your and Genentech's work on advancing health equity? Yeah, and I think there's there's a there's a general um, answer and there's a more specific one. The general one is that partnership is key. And as I mentioned earlier, it's one of those reasons is because no single organization alone can undo what is often centuries of disadvantage that leads to health equity. Um, for example, when you talk in the United States about in, indigenous persons, or you talk about African-American populations in the United States, we are not talking about simple solutions in which there is a you know, a, a magic bullet or silver bullet sort of solution to that. It requires a multidisciplinary, multi-stakeholder approach in order to lift the healthcare of all populations. And I say all populations very intentionally because our, our fundamental belief is addressing health equity, raising the healthcare of traditionally disadvantaged groups raises all healthcare for the entire community of patients entirety community community of people. And we see evidence for this as well. Addressing health inequity is a means of lifting access and care for all persons, regardless of background. So as a at a conceptual level, because health disparity is so complicated, it requires this broad based consortium of stakeholders. And so that, therefore, creating the types of partnerships that we do at the academic letter, the level through community-based organizations, working on federal, state, and local political le levels with leaders such as yourself, to really have that dialogue around what we can do to make sure that, again, that patients have access to health care is a, is a core part because it requires so many different parties in order to improve the, uh, the quality of care that's delivered. But we also note that the partnerships that we create have to be at various levels, all the way from the federal government, where we may work hand in glove with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, for example, all the way down to local politicians like yourself in East Palo Alto, to community-based organizations, and even into the barbershop, and even into the churches, because we realize we have to reach the patients where they are with various levels of stakeholders and policymakers that contribute to addressing health disparity. That is so important. I was on a call yesterday um, and we were talking about um, um, with the California Black Health Network and we were talking about health equ equity in general. And one of the questions was, how are we going to get to a solution or is this possible or what does it look like? And we know it takes what Genentech is doing and investing in solutions and working with public and private sector to have an impact. So thank you so much for the, the work that you're doing. It, this is what it's gonna to take to have a real impact. Can you unpack a little bit more about health disparities before we, we, we move on as well? It's, it's such an important question and a challenging one as well. And let's, let's bring this, as they say, let's make this a little real here. In as much as, you know, here we are in, in Northern California and in Palo Alto, in a sense, we have some of the most sophisticated medical systems on planet Earth. So we have Stanford University Medical Center in Palo Alto with an incredible reach and incredible faculty. And as a member of that faculty, I feel comfortable in saying that it's truly one of the leading medical centers in the world. 
really not very far away. You have significant health disparities and health inequity that exist in, in East Palo Alto. And it's, it's incumbent upon organizations and medical centers, drug manufacturers and others to, to recognize that local disparity. And therefore, much of the work is, is required to be local, is the reach out, are the telecommunications, are the satellite healthcare centers, are the active attempts to make sure that the resources that are available are equally distributed. And that term health desert, I think, is, is, is very valid in a sense, because you see objectively differences in concentrations of providers and in medical centers, just in the same way that you, we, we talk about food deserts and we say, well, how do we define that? Well, then you can look for the numbers of supermarkets and of grocers per square mile in different regions and find significant differences. And we therefore can define them as being food deserts. We see something very similar in healthcare as well, where you can see a lack of specialty care. You can see a lack of availability of providers. And it's incumbent upon medical systems to make sure that they are reaching out into all communities so that many of those barriers are overcome. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time. I know it's it's time for us to probably wrap up. Wanted to see if there were any other things that you wanted to cover um, and give you the last word. Uh, we appreciate your time. Health equity is important to um, the region, to most cities, and to the country as a whole. So again, thank you for the work that Genentech is doing. Thank you for your work. Again, the last word is yours. Oh, thanks so much, Lisa. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you today as always. And I would say in terms of last word is to recognize that we are all collectively in this together, that the healthcare system in the United States is under some significant challenges. We have recently come out of the depth of the COVID-19 pandemic, which still continues at some level. But we know, and what we learned from that pandemic was the differential impact of disease on certain populations. In order to get to that point where we, we do see this leveling, we do see this equality of access, is going to require a great deal of work from all of us across the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, across academia, in the manufacturing sector, and so on. So I suppose what I would sort of end with is this encouragement that we continue to have conversations like we're having today, reaching across to other sectors where there are synergies that can address some of these health disparities. We really do have to work together, if you will, to undo, in many cases, disadvantages that have existed for many, many, in some cases, centuries. So I would encourage all of our listeners to really think creatively, ask ourselves, why do these differences occur among populations? And what can we as a collective and in consortium with other organizations do to address them? We have an incredible opportunity in front of us, and I hope that we all take advantage of that, of that in the way that we best can. And that was the conversation with Dr. Pierre Theodore at Genentech. Nadia, what were your thoughts about the two discussions that were had today, both around healthcare and artificial intelligence? You know, we touched on two very consequential topics and two topics that are ultimately going to shape the future of our society moving forward. You know, as a, a human and a person who is impacted by both things and also not on the best end of the stats and facts, the way things are trending, you know, I'm really happy that these conversations are happening in hopes that we can begin to address some of the disparities 
and also the potential for disparate impacts on, on me and my population as well. So I, I appreciate the conversation. Again, lots of questions, lots of things to follow up on, but again, very hopeful at the same time that we are gonna do, do these better and also do them in a way that is more inclusive and equitable moving forward. We also know as well that policymakers are gonna be struggling with the policies, the laws, and the regulations in both of these industries going forward. And you're absolutely right. Humans should remain central to those discussions. There's gonna be so much opportunity, I think, for stakeholders to help provide education about the state of both of those industries, about the potential futures of both of those industries, and to ultimately contribute to the decision-making process about where we take both healthcare and artificial intelligence. And I'm excited to help us as an organization here at the Leadership Group to move those conversations forward going into uh, the next several years where a lot of advancement is gonna be taking place very, very quickly. You know, Peter, you are absolutely right. I think there's lots of things that are gonna evolve and be a part of this conversation moving forward. And me personally, I'm curious to see, you know, how the society and the general public begins to engage and continue to understand these very important topics. And with that, we're gonna wrap this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes. Please like, share, and subscribe. And remember, with millions of stories in Silicon Valley, you can't always get all the details, but you can get the vibes right here on Silicon Valley Vibes. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Silicon Valley Vibes. SVV is produced by Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Our executive producer is Chuck Dickinson with audio mastering from RR Robbins. AI music provided by SoundRaw. Recording production support provided by the platform Riverside FM. Your AI announcer, me, VV, is provided by Eleven Labs. What do you call a ride-sharing app that serves breakfast? Eggs Uber Easy. Yeah, I should go. Bye from VV.